Good morning. Uh, my name's Matt Proctor. If we've never had a chance to meet, I'd love to chat with you after the service. Um, those of you who are coming in, uh, maybe you haven't been here in a few weeks or it's just your first time, I welcome you. Uh, I just want to set the stage a little bit on where we are in a sermon series and where we are in a ministry year. Uh, if I could put kind of a banner over our ministry year, it would be this. We want to, this year, we want to marvel at God's invitations to us, and then we want to magnify Him in like behavior. And so we're in a sermon series that primarily we want to just marvel that God invites us into relationship with Him. God invites us into ministry with Him. God invites us to know His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so last week, I appreciated uh, Ken Seide. He preached through a sermon on God inviting us to His table. Come to the table. We symbolize that in the taking of the Lord's Supper. Uh, but this idea of God inviting us to come and sit at the table. And I was encouraged this week. We, I heard that someone in our church invited 13 people for a single event to come to their table. And they had six yeses. Uh, that's exciting. When someone says, come to my, I want to I I I magnify the God who has invited me to his table by doing something that says, look at what God is like. I want you to know my God. But today we're going to talk about what does it mean to start inviting someone into your community, inviting someone to your group. But we got to understand first that God invites us to community with him. So let me pray and we'll ask for the Lord's blessing on your time together. Father in heaven, you are holy, majestic, and good. There is no one like you. Uh, you are so unique, so distinct. We can't even get our minds around how unique you are. And yet in your mercy, you invite people, you summon people to enter into a relationship with you. And it's those to whom you invite are your enemies. Objects of your wrath are then made objects of your love. And so we pray, God, that we would be able to understand what kind of community you're inviting us into, as well as what kind of community we would invite others into. But ultimately, we want to know you. We want you to be honored. So do a work in our hearts and our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, once upon a time, there was a wee little man, and his name was Zacchaeus. And if you have a Bible, we'll look at his story in a second. But we, we actually don't know very much about this man, Zacchaeus. We know he had money, that he was wealthy. We also know that he was short. We also knew that we, he made his living by collecting taxes. Uh, which means, though he was a Jewish man... He worked for the occupying power, the Roman Empire, and he took in money for the enemy. And we know that one day Jesus decided to come to his town, to the town of Jericho. And for whatever reason, Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus. And so it says he climbed a tree. It's like a deer stand, right? He wants to be able to see. But I, I bet it was strange for Zacchaeus when he had his good view of Jesus. And then Jesus got closer and closer and closer, closer, until it says Jesus comes to the spot. And Jesus looks up to Zacchaeus. You remember what Jesus said to Zacchaeus? 
come down. (laughs) Come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Now talk about an invitation to community, right? Miracle working, Bible teaching, holy one of God, Jesus, says to a short, wealthy tax collector, hello, I'm coming to your house for supper. You and me, Zacchaeus, me, we're going to eat, we're going to talk, we're going to share a life together. And the Bible records Zacchaeus' response in verse 6 of Luke 19. He's, it says, So Zacchaeus came down at once and it welcomed him gladly. Now all the people who saw this, they began to mutter. You hear that? I mean, remember Zacchaeus was high above the crowd looking over to see Jesus. The crowd is there and they're muttering. What are they muttering about? He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Now you get the idea of muttering, like this is ongoing, like he's hearing this over and over. I mean, this is the, the, the refrain is, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood up and he said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. If I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, today, salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man to came to seek and to save the loss. So I want this familiar story to kind of serve as a backdrop to this conversation about community. God invites us to great things. We are therefore to invite people to great things. One area I'd love to see us as a church do is invite people to our groups. Uh, uh, your small group, your Bible study, maybe a prayer group. Uh, One of the sweetest and most precious gifts you can ever extend to someone is friendship, relationship. But I fear that we have a disordered or confused idea of what a group is or what community is, right? Not all groups are equal. Not all communities are the same. So I don't mean some sort of random book club Uh, a beer-drinking group, or your tennis buddies, right? Rather, I want to look today at what what does the Bible say community is, or what is it supposed to look like? And then once we have a kind of a biblical understanding, what is is the community which God wants, then then we would try to pursue such groups and then invite people into such groups. So to assist us this morning, we're actually going to have a theological discussion on community. And I, I want to talk about it. Um, one way, and this is, you could do this with really almost any aspect of the world, is, is to, to look at under the four broad headings of salvation history. And those would be creation, the fall, redemption, and restoration. Like you can do this with marriage, you can do this with friendship, you can do this with money. But I want to look at it with regard to community. So that is, what did God intend at creation? What was distorted and damaged at the fall? 
What has Christ redeemed through his first coming? And what will Christ fully restore at his second coming? If that's a little bit confusing, sometimes you can put it under four little expressions. Ought, is, can be, will be. Community as it ought to be. Community as it is right now. Community as it can be because of Jesus Christ. And community as it will be in God's future. So that's what we're gonna, those are our big headings. So let's begin with the all-important question. What did God intend for community in the beginning? How was it ought to be? And here's just a simple expression. I, I believe that community ought to be marked by reverential communion. Now, that's a bit of a mouthful. Reverential communion. But what, what I'm trying to do is, the idea of reverence is when you bestow on someone dignity and honor, you recognize that, that, that uh, God and humans, they have a certain level of gravitas, and there's a sense in which you revere them. But there's also this pursuit of communion, right? That's, that's intimacy, that's relationship, that's love. So let's focus on this idea of reverential first, right? So to revere someone, you're going to give them honor and you're going to recognize their dignity. But it all begins with our attitude toward God. Some of you guys remember Ecclesiastes. This book about just kind of why, why sometimes life seems co- so confusing and empty. And when you get to the end of Ecclesiastes, he says, this is, this is the sum of the matter. This is, this, is, this is bottom line truth. Fear God and keep his commandments. Right? This is fear him, honor him, recognize the weightiness of the holy God of the universe. If you don't get that right, you will get nothing right. So in Proverbs, it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise instruction. And so in the pursuit of community, it's going to start with, do I fear God? Do I revere God? And since humans are made in his image, I will honor them as well. There is a, there is a stamp of the divine image on every single person, that, 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 that we should almost tremble because of their greatness. Mike read Psalm 8 this morning. It says that humans are crowned with glory and honor. And so as God created community, what it ought to be is a sense of reverence for God, highest reverence for God, and a similar sort of reverence for those made in His image. But, but our relationship with God and humans requires not only reverence, it, and not only fear, not only honor. It says we're also supposed to pursue communion. Like we're to pursue love and intimacy and relationship. Many of you recall that when someone tried to put Jesus into a corner, well, what's the greatest command? By the way, you can't corner Jesus. He, he just corners us. And he says, here it is. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. All your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And the second command is like it. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Reverential communion with God. Reverential communion with humans. This is God's desire. 
This is the bullseye of God's desire for community. Think about even as we're, how are we supposed to pray? Heavenly Father. Reverence. Intimacy. This is what God wants. But he wants it between humanity too. So do you remember, uh, do you remember how God uh, created the world in six days? And, but uh, but, but uh, it was early on the sixth day that God created Adam. And, and Adam spent the day alone, naming the animals. And after the end of the day, God says, it's not good for man to be alone. In that perfect world, with perfect beasts, and fields, and trees, and land. Some of you Iowa hunters are like, that sounds pretty good. No, no, no. Something wasn't right in the perfect world until God brought Adam a helper. And so, it says this Genesis 2, verse 21. Genesis 2 says, So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man was made into a woman, brought her to the man. And this is what Genesis two twenty three says. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Do you see the honor that Adam is bestowing on Eve? He sees a native honor and a naked majesty in her, and he exclaims, she is my equal. She's like me, flesh of flesh, and also not like me, right? She is woman. Uh, Something other, something complimentary, something beautiful, something precious, something worthy of love and worthy of honor. That's how Adam responds to Eve. And it's interesting, when you pick up your Bibles later in the New Testament, 1 Peter 3, you read that that's how Sarah treated Abraham. That that Sarah loved her husband, and she loved him with a purity and a reverence, with, with humble love. This is the heart of what God desires in all marriages. Man to woman and woman to man, this reverential community. Think about the the gravity and the romance of a wedding day. That is to be the persistent reality of a marriage. Reverential community. But this communion that God desires, it doesn't just exist for marriages. One of the the more... uh, I don't just. I love this story. I just read it a, a week ago in my Bible reading plan. It's the friendship of Jonathan and David. And some of you guys, if you're not familiar with this story, uh, Jonathan was the son of King Saul. Jonathan was probably the heir to the throne. Jonathan, who was a, a mighty warrior and a great leader. Well, his dad was not. <laughs> His dad was a sinner and proud and arrogant and disobedient to God. And so God decided that, Saul, you will not keep the throne. Saul, you will not, your future heir will not be the king. I'm going to choose another. And then another chosen is David. Now, if there would be enmity between two people, I think it would be this. The deposed heir, Jonathan, and the incoming heir, David. But there is this beautiful scene in 1 Samuel. After David is faithful to God and he fights against the enemy, Jonathan comes to David. 
And it says that Jonathan strips himself of all of the kingly regalia, all of the princely regalia, and he puts it on David. I love you. And I want you to be king. Talk about the reverence given and the intimacy bestowed. And that relationship goes to the very end that when Jonathan dies, David weeps. And he sings a song and he writes poetry that says this relationship was deeply profound. This is what God wants in all of our types of relationships. We want to make others king and others queen in our relationship. We want to revere them and love them. We want to push others up and be willing to go down. That's what God wants in communion with other people. I love in the, the essay by C.S. Lewis called The Weight of Glory. He grasped the dignity of humanity so well when he wrote these words. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, these are mortal. And their life to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Can you imagine a world filled with reverential communion? Reverential communion would end racism in a split second. It would be gone. Reverential communion would clear out jails. It would end domestic violence. It would make every street in the world, safe at night. But we have so fallen from what God desired and what God designed. And you get a sense of that if you think about the mess that was going on in Jericho before Jesus showed up. Right? You got Zacchaeus, who's exploiting his position of power. He had ignored the poor. He had cheated his neighbors. And in response, his neighbors loathed him and just labeled him sinner. Dirtbag. Evil. Rejected. Now, the Bible refers to this tragic decline from the original purpose of God to the fall or the fall of mankind. And so let's talk a little bit about uh, community in this fallen world. We, we, we have this picture of what God wanted it to be, but what is it really like now? Uh, James, the half-brother of Jesus, put it this way in James 4, verses 1 and 2. He just says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but do not have, so you kill. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean literally kill. It means that I don't have what I want, so I'm going to kill your reputation. I don't have what I want, so I'm going to kill your hopes and your dreams and your pocketbook, whatever, because you covet and you cannot get what you want, and so you quarrel and you fight. It is impossible to have reverential communion when our desires trump other people and when it trumps other people's needs. Homer Simpson may have been on to something when he said, our kids used to be cute. To which Bart Simpson replied, used to? And Homer Simpson said, oh, just deal with it. 
humans are far from cute. We don't honor or love God. We don't honor each other. We don't love one another. And much of the Bible documents how this tragedy has unfolded. So again, at creation, God sets the first Lord and Lady over the world. But they choose to dishonor God and separate themselves. God gave them an abundant land and said, Do not eat from the tree that is forbidden from you. In effect, God is saying, don't pursue what you haven't been given. He had actually given them much, and he said, enjoy much, but do not pursue what has been forbidden. Don't take from what God has said, don't take. Trust God, love God, submit to God. But Adam and Eve reject God. And that rejection is the fountainhead of all human discord. Right? The first order of business is to fear God and to love God. That, that's the North Star, right? That is the, the centering truth of every human's life. When that is broken, everything beneath it is broken. And that's why the first thing that happens to Adam and Eve is they just start fighting with each other. Alienation from God leads to alienation with whom all God has made in his image. Being excluded from God leads to isolation and exclusion from others. So as soon as Adam and Eve reject God in Genesis chapter 3, what do they do? They pull out their index fingers. You, 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 you. Right? They just blame and shame each other. Well, the woman you gave me, God, she told me to eat, right? I mean, it's just this blame game. In the Genesis 4, it doesn't get any better for the firstborn son kills his younger brother out of, I mean, it seems like nothing, jealousy, disappointment. Genesis 6, it says, the sons of God with power take and rape women for their own purposes. And then the Bible is just this honest telling of wars erupting, nations building walls, enmity reigning between God and humanity, and humanity against humanity. This is the world we live in today. Hostility. Hostility between God and humans. Humans at war with each other. It is... It's at this point, I just want to say something that if, if you're new to Christianity or new to the church, sometimes if you, if you get a Hallmark card or if you're watching someone on television, they love to just say, God is the father of every human person. And that is just not true. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that we're all enemies. We're all born enemies of God. So if the more accurate thing to maybe start our children's books with is you are an enemy of God. Now, I think you turn to the next page. But th- this is what the Bible wants us to know, that we start in alienation, alienation, isolation, exclusion, and enmity against God. We are God's enemies, and it's our fault, not his. He remains holy, he remains righteous, he remains good. But that enmity is, is where we are with God. And then it spills out into the, the fights in middle school. 
We become enemies with our peers. It's why high school girls bite and claw through their jealousies. It's why politicians slander each other rather than propose better policies. That idea of reverential community has been destroyed. And then what's most embarrassing of all, at least this is for me, is I find a way to justify all of my behavior. I pull out my index fingers, and I'd be like, well, I wouldn't say those things about that sports official if he would just do his job. And yet I slander, and I mock, and I judge. I pull out my finger, and I say, well, I wouldn't be such a jerk if that retail worker would just do her job. I'm just treating her as she has treated me. The blame game, the shame game. Well, I would treat my family better if they would treat me better. But they deserve everything they get. Just some questions for you to ponder for you. Uh, My answers were sports officials, retail and government employees, and family that has offended me. But here's questions for you. Who are the people that you feel you have free reign to mock or slander? Who are the people that you feel that you have free reign to mock or slander? Maybe it's someone from a different political party. Maybe you're like the folks in Zacchaeus' town that went around pointing at people and labeling them sinners. Maybe you're like Zacchaeus. You've been bullied long enough, and now it's your turn to push around people who pushed you around. It's your turn to use your power to get back at them, steal a little cash, indulge in a little gossip. Just remember that we do all of this in the eyes of God. He sees our pride, our hate, and our slander. Book of James, a little earlier than the passage I read to you before, James 3.9 says this, With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing, my brothers and sisters, this should not be. God desires reverential communion first with him and then with those who have been made in his image. But we do not fear God and we don't love God. We don't fear and revere others and love them as we should. And yet something strange happens in history. The God, the God who is hated, and disrespected and unloved comes to save those people. So let's look at this third idea. What ought things to be? What are they? What like what can they be because of Jesus Christ? What did Jesus Christ have to do to end the enmity and restore the community? I appreciate how the, the writer of the Gospel of John, whose name is John, He describes Jesus' entrance this way. Verse 9, John 1, verse 9. It says, The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world. And though the world was made through him, 
The world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Now, this shouldn't be that surprising, right? The idea that the God that we have rejected, the God that we have said, no, thank you, I don't want to love you, when he shows up in the flesh, it's not surprising. They're going to keep rejecting him. What Jesus does in the flesh, the miracles, his love, his power, his his holiness, his words of righteousness, all those things were a resume for the enemies of God to keep hating. Because he was being who he was. He was God. And so though he comes into the world, he's the true light. People don't receive him. They continue to reject him. Something similar like this happens in Jericho. He shows up at Jericho, and most of the crowds have no clue what he is up to. They see him reach out to Zacchaeus, and instead of rejoicing at Jesus' mercy, they get mad. And they do it like good religious people do. They just mutter. We're religious people. We don't take to social media. We mutter at prayer time. They mutter. And do you remember Jesus' response to the Jews dwelling in Jericho? Jesus points at Zacchaeus. Probably doesn't point. He doesn't. He's more of a hand. And he says, did you hear what he, remember what he said? This man, too, is a son of Abraham. This man. This man. He's dignity. I mean, in this case, he's saying he's part of God's people, God's Jews. Like, he, has, he has value. <laughs> and in some ways, he's like going to the crowd. He's like you. He too, son of Abraham. He's like you. He's an image bearer. He has value. Just because a coin is lost doesn't mean it doesn't have value. In fact, if you've ever lost a coin or a wallet or a credit card, you actually feel its value more when it's lost. Remember what he says? Jesus says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. That's why he's here. The owner of the coin, the owner of Zacchaeus, still values him. I've come for him. That's why I'm here. Now, some of you may be getting this. Many of you won't. Maybe you can't imagine Jesus welcoming the worst person in your mind. Not him. Me, of course. Him, her, no. Now, now what John's going to do, the Gospel of John, the rest of the Gospel of John, remember, people don't reject him, or people reject him. But what Gospel John will go on to do throughout the Gospel is, is say that the very people uh, that reject him at the beginning, they reject him at the end, too. And it culminates with false accusations against Jesus, a, a death sentence. Uh, they begin to name-call Jesus toward the end of his life. They, they put a crown of thorns on his head. Uh, they beat him. They whip him. They hang him up on a cross so that they can kill him. Is that the glory phone? <laughs> this is what's happening on the cross. This is what's happening. Jesus 
is acting out the enmity of all enmities on the cross. Utter rejection. This is why when he takes up on his lips, he takes up Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? By the way, Jesus never asked a question that he doesn't know the answer to. That question is for you and for me. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We just have to ponder, why would the Holy Son of God be forsaken? It's not because he's a sinner. It's because I'm a sinner. Why would Jesus be treated like an enemy of God? Not because he's an enemy of God, but because I'm an enemy of God. Because you're an enemy of God. The prophet Isaiah speaks this warning to sinners. Isaiah 59, 2. It says, but your iniquities have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. This gives an indication to what does our representative and substitute have to do? Well, his cry has to go unanswered, and it does. He has to remain separated, and he does. He takes our iniquities. He dies in our place. This is how God shows his loves for enemies. He dies for them. But again, Jesus doesn't do this for nothing. In a great line in Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says, Jesus goes all the way down so that he can bring us up with him. So he went to utter rejection because we were rejected so that he can bring us up to actually his status of welcome to sons and daughters of the king invited back into full community with the Father we had rejected. We used to sing a song years ago. I'm forgiven because you were forsaken. I'm accepted you were condemned. I'm alive and well. Your spirit is within me because you died and you rose again. Apostle Paul puts it this way in Colossians 1, 21 and 22. It says, once you were alienated from God. And you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. Jesus is the dividing line of history. I'm not talking about B.C. and A.D. I'm talking about the dividing line of history for your life, my life, and every person's lives. You're either an enemy of God or you've been reconciled by Jesus Christ and you are now a child of God. You either continue to reject the Son or you receive the Son. He's the dividing line. Have you trusted Christ? He has more than abundantly demonstrated his ability, his power, and his willingness to invite you into community. Will you come? Many are called. Few are chosen. Christ has done everything he needed to do to redeem our lost relationship with God. But I want to end here also that Christ doesn't just come to redeem our relationship with God, but to redeem our relationships with one another. Uh, For instance, four centuries, the greatest division in the world was between Jews and non-Jews, Gentiles. But when Paul is describing what Christ has accomplished in Ephesians chapter 2, he says that division is not there anymore. Christ is 
broken that down. Ephesians 2, 14 and following says, For he, Christ, himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the, clo- through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Christ died to create one new people, Jew and Gentile. Now that extends to everything, Jew and Gentile, black and white, male and female. But one family under God, one fellowship before God. Back to the Apostle John in the chapter 1, he he says it this way. He says, Jesus, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him. I love that. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not out of natural descent, nor of a human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. And so 2,000 years later, we, we still call out to anyone who will listen, receive Jesus Christ, believe in his name, turn from your enemy, be, be made a child of God. Right? That's the first application of this sermon. It's the first application of every day of our lives. Right? Be reconciled to God. And yet there's this movement all throughout the New Testament to those who have been reconciled to God, be reconciled with one another. Be reconciled with one another. Even, even as you pray the Lord's Prayer, some of you have learned this wonderful prayer. There, one thing just to think about, the, the aspect of reverential communion for God and one another, just in that prayer. One aspect is we, we, whenever you pray that, you're actually, even if you're by yourself, you're actually still praying it in the plural. Give us our daily bread. Right? Thinking of others while you pray the Lord's Prayer is like built into the prayer. But you get to those parts where you say, Father, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have debts against us. These are moral debts. These are grievances. These are frustrations. In order to really know, one of the ways to know that you have come to know God is that you have released people from the debts that they owe you. Financial debts, well, that person owes me an apology. Have you ever said that? Release people from their debts. Love them. Uh, there's a story back in October 2nd, 2006. There's a guy named Matt Swatzel. Firefighter. He just finished a 24-hour shift serving his community. But while driving home, he fell asleep. And when he woke up, he realized he had crashed into June Fitzgerald's car, a 30-year-old mom. Uh, Her 19-month-old daughter survived, but June died, and so did the baby in her womb. So how would husband Eric respond? That's the question. Fitzgerald would go on to say, you forgive as you have been forgiven. He says it wasn't an option If you've been forgiven, then you need to extend that forgiveness. 
And to this day, Matt and Eric still get together for meals. So when we talk about inviting people to great things, we talk about inviting people to community again. Not all groups are equal. I don't mean a Taco Tuesday Club or Margarita Mondays with the ladies. I'm talking about in God's mercy that you would be able to invite people to those places and those spaces where you are pursuing reverential communion with God and with others. You have neighbors, you have friends that are desperate to come to a place where God is honored and loved and where they will be honored and loved in the same place. This is what you've been made for, and there are many who have never tasted such places or spaces. I want to close with this last idea, right? We've looked at what what things ought to have been. We talked about false impact on humanity. I want to end... Uh, now, though, what's, what's Christ's restoration plan for community? Where does this end? Where is this going? And therefore, we have to go to the end of the Bible. Turn to it, if you can, with me in Revelation 19. What, what, what happens in the book of Revelation, it's a revelation of Jesus Christ that John gets to see. And what, what is occurring for this man in the book of Revelation is God peels back the curtain and says, John, I want you to write down some things that are going to happen to give people hope as they suffer, to give hope when things are hard, give hope when the enemy seems to be prowling. But I want you to read what it's going to look like at the end. This is God's restoration plan for community. It says the 24 elders and the four living creatures, Revelation 19.4, the 24 elders and the four living creatures, they fell down and they worshiped God who was seated on the throne and they cried, Amen, Hallelujah. Hallelujah is praise Yahweh, the one true God. And then a voice came from the throne, from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both great and small. And then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. And then the angel said to me, write this. Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. And at this I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters who hold the testimony of Jesus Worship God, for it is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. So just, what's God's restoration plan for community? First note that in the future there is going to be this multitude of worshipers before God. And it says there's both great and small. There's degrees of glory and honor present. But though there's degrees of glory and honor, everyone's utmost reverence is for God. Even when John is like awestruck and wants to bow down to the messenger, the messenger's like, whoa, dude. Worship God. Fear him. Love him. All you people. But think about this, though. The picture of 
the last, the, this symbol at the end of time, what is it? It's a wedding. And we're the bride. We're the bride. He's, he takes us. He receives us. He welcomes us. He seats us. One of the passages in the Gospels, when Jesus comes, it says, He seats us and He serves us. Get your mind around that one. As it was at the beginning, so now it will be in the future. Reverential communion between God and His people and His people and His people. <laughs> If you long for this place, today you can trust God and know that you'll be there. God has invited. He still invites to this sweet community. I close with one verse, and then we'll pray. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. Let the one who hears say, Come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes to take the free gift of the water of life. Father in heaven, that you would extend community to those who were rebellious and rejected you, we just say thank you. We praise you. Lord, in this past week, we have snubbed and we have shamed, we have blamed. And so we come to you again and say, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. We pray that this church would be a place where there is reverential communion uh, toward God and toward one another. Pray that that would be true of every small group, every Bible study, every prayer group, every coffee group. Lord, make our groups uh, the places that you have intended them to be and can now be so because of Christ's redemptive work. Go before us. We long for the day when we sit at that that table with the Lord. Uh, But until we come, we pray that we would be found faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.